concluding sermon on uh, canticles, traditions in the church, and I pray, God, that you would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You would enable us to receive from your word, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first thing I need to say is that this sermon cannot be taken by Elder Edwin, not because of his theological complexity, but because it's got to be very short. Uh, it's short because we've taken time for the five Bs and we've taken time for the budget. But do you see anything wrong in this picture? You know, when I Google Nung Dimittis, which is Latin for now you dismiss, and the first thing that appeared, of course, is Wikipedia, and this is the first picture on Wikipedia. Um, but I'm going to, it's painted by some Russian painter in the 1800s. Okay, I'm going to make my sermon even shorter by playing you a video which I thought was so good. It's a, it's a music video uh, written by Michael Card, and uh, it's that now that I've held him in my arms, it gives us a picture of uh, what this story is about.
what was wrong with the picture earlier and what is wrong with this video. Okay, that's why we need to read the Bible. Okay, so let's look at Luke chapter 2 from verse 25. Luke chapter 2 from verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What was wrong with this picture? Jesus was too big. <laughs> okay? Jesus was supposed to be only 40 days old when Mary and Joseph presented him in the temple and Mary had to do her purification uh, rites according to Leviticus chapter 12. What was wrong with the video? You saw the knife? No, no, no. The knife was when Jesus was eight days old. Then he would have been circumcised when he was eight days old. This is not eight days old. This is 40 days old presentation to the temple, purification rites for, for Mary. And at the purification rites, Leviticus chapter 12 specifies what the sacrifices were and specifies that Mary should either sacrifice one lamb and one pigeon or dove, one lamb and one bird, or if you cannot afford that, then two birds, two pigeons or two doves. And what did she do? She sacrificed two pigeons, meaning that she was poor. And I've heard sermons that from, especially from health and wealth preachers, to say that, no, Jesus' family was not poor. Jesus was not a carpenter. You, this Greek word and Hebrew word and all that. Carpenter means mason. That means he is like main contractor. Right? Carpenter is subcontractor. But if he were a main contractor, then he was a poor main contractor because they could not afford a lamb and a bird. Right? Mary only presented two pigeons as a sacrifice. And Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, talked about 16th century missionary, a Jesuit ministry, uh, uh, missionary who went from uh, uh, Italy to China, Matteo Ricci, a very famous missionary who went to China. And he brought along with him samples of what was called religious art or Christian art to illustrate the Christian story to the people, kind of like our four beats, okay? It's an illustration and the Chinese people loved the, por the portrait of Mary, the one on the right, uh, holding the child. And, and it's just like a sublime thing. You know? Who doesn't like uh, a woman holding a child and, and all that? But when Matteo Ricci tried to talk about the crucifixion, that this child will grow up to be the saviour and he will be nailed on the cross and executed there, then the Chinese couldn't take it. They reacted with horror. They much prefer the virgin and they wanted to worship her instead of this crucified child. 
And that was uh, how people react to a story like this. And so Philip Yancey makes this observation. He says, as I thumb through my stack of Christmas cards, I realize that we in so-called Christian countries do very much the same thing. We observe a mellow, domesticated holiday that is purged of any scandal. And above all, we purge it from the reminder of how this story that began in Bethlehem would turn out in Calvary when Jesus was killed. Simeon's Christmas was not Christmas card-like. In fact, his prophecy, if it did not pierce Mary's heart there and then, would at least have leave, left her puzzled tremendously. And yeah, I think that's the, the, the justice of that video. You see, Mary, like, blur, blur. What is this guy saying that a sword will pierce my soul? And there is so much that we don't understand in life, at least at its beginning. But it cannot stop us from trusting and obeying God. And I think Mary got that message. But who was this Simeon? Not too much is known about him in the Bible, except that he was righteous and devout. And we'll get more into that later. Was he an old man or was he a young man? That is not revealed, although everybody assumes that he is an old man. The Bible does not tell us explicitly. Tradition has it that he was 113 years old when he saw the Christ child, and when he carried the baby, Jesus. Another tr tradition, or another story rather, added that he was one of the 70 scholars who translated the, the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, the Greek Septuagint. And that, then as, as Simeon was translating the, the prophet, the book Isaiah, and when he read the words, Behold, a virgin shall conceive in a womb and shall and shall bear forth a son. Remember Isaiah chapter 7? Then he thought, virgin, not correct. How can a virgin uh, bear a child? And he wanted to correct that to woman. And then at the moment, an angel appeared to him and held back his hand from writing woman instead of virgin. And he says, the angel tell him, Yo, this word shall be fulfilled. You shall not die. And you shall behold Christ the Lord that was born of a pure and spotless virgin. It's a very nice story, except that it cannot be true. Because if it were true, then Simeon would have been 200 plus years old when he saw the Christ child. So it cannot be true. But nice story nevertheless. Simeon's claim to fame is, I guess, through the Latin phrase you see here, non dimittis, now you dismiss me. That means now I can die. Lah, right? And he has seen the baby Christ. And, and there can be no better feeling than carrying a baby. What more? The baby Christ, the Messiah and he waited obediently, he waited watchfully for that moment when the Holy Spirit revealed who the Christ was. You could see in the video, he was kind of like milling about at the temple and just waiting and waiting. And then the Christ came and he was prompted by the Holy Spirit, this is the Christ child. And then he pronounced a few things. He pronounced that salvation will come from Jesus, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, right in the temple. And that would have been scandalous already in his days. That salvation will be for not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Then he pro pro prophesied about the falling and the rising of many. Now, I think it's more usual these days when you say the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. It's always a rise first and then the fall. But why did Simeon say the falling and then the rising? The same word rising that is used, uh, the Greek word is, um, what is it? And it, Anastasia, 
the, the name Anastasia comes from this Greek word, okay? Uh, I can't find it here. My eyes is gone. It's the falling and the rising. Every time this word is used in Greek, it refers to resurrection in other parts of the Bible. And that's why man can fall, but man can be resurrected as Christ will be the first resurrection. And that he prophesied. And, and uh, anastasis is the Greek word for, for rising. And that's why we have the name Anastasia. And I don't believe we have one Anastasia here in PPH. If you have a, a daughter, you can think about Anastasia, uh, the rising. Okay? So it's translated as the resurrection, the rising. Then he prophesied about the sufferings of Jesus and the suffering and heartache also of the mother of Jesus, Mary, that a sword will pierce her soul. So these three scandalous pronouncements that God will come in human flesh as a baby and not like, like an angel, just fully developed, that salvation is for the Gentiles also and that this new mother will suffer and a sword will pierce her soul. That was Simeon's message. And this Nung Dimitis canticle or song or hymn is, is, is used very often at funerals in the more traditional churches. They will either sing it in Latin or some very classical uh, rendition uh, of it. And uh, I found out that it was used at Margaret Thatcher's funeral. Okay, anybody who knows Margaret Thatcher? I forgot already. Okay, Margaret Thatcher's funeral. And you might want to consider using it for your funeral. Don't say choy. Okay, there's not, Christians do not say choy, okay? okay? Uh, because we are quite clear about death and what comes with that. And so, I'm going to end my short sermon here. Nung Dimitis, now you can be dismissed. <laughs> but I lie. I lie. I also say choy in the pulpit, okay? Sacrilegious. Last week, I came across two persons whose doctors called them prematurely and said, come back, we found a problem with you. What goes through your mind? Can you imagine what goes through your mind when the clinic, not the doctor, usually some nurse will call you, uh, so-and-so, come back. Okay, come back today better. And we've got something to tell you. What goes through your mind? Your mind said, die la. <laughs> die la. So I've been thinking about death as I was preparing this sermon. And once I told someone that this person has died, and the response I got from this person was, so was it a peaceful passing away? And I thought, I don't know how to respond. Was it a peaceful passing away? Did you know that there are at least 200 euphemisms for, for death? And I found it from this Discover magazine. 20 things you didn't know about death. 200, like, kick the bucket, like, gone to be with the Lord, like, promoted to glory. And the one that I like is pushing up daisies, although we don't have daisies here and we don't get buried so often. And the Cantonese will have Kuala Chan, you know. Is a peaceful death... What is a peaceful death? Is it to die of old age? Well, if that is the case, then no American has had a peaceful death or no American has died of old age since 1951. Why? Because that was a year the American government eliminated that classification from death certificates. Cause of death, you no longer put old age in America at least since 1951. And just this morning in the Straits Times, I found this. N-O-D-A, NODA. No one dies alone. And, and several full pages 
of uh, this man's story. No one dies alone, and there are people who just go and keep the guy company until he dies in, in the hospice. So what is a peaceful death? In fact, what is a good death? And what is a bad death? And I found a journal article in the Social Science and, and Medicine, uh, published in the year 2004 by this Dutch theologian, very funny name, right? Klaas Spronk. And the title of his paper is Good Death and Bad Death in Ancient Israel According to Biblical Law. I'm not sure if he's a, a, a liberal theologian or what. I, I didn't have time to check. So it's what is a good death and what is a bad death according to Bible stories. That's what it means. A good death means you live long, long life. A bad death means premature, like young or cute when you're young or die when you're young according to this research paper. A good death means you die in peace. And opposite of dying in peace is a violent death, uh, suicide or whatever. And, and he even added what is a shameful death. Okay, I'm just repeating what he says. Huh? A shameful death is when you're killed by a woman. Okay, <laughs> right. He said that. What is a good death? A good death is when you have continuity with your ancestors and when you have continuity with your heirs. Right? It's uh, Santai. Okay, three generations. A bad death is when you have no heirs, right? Nobody to carry on your name or whatever, according to Chinese tradition. A good death is when you're buried in your own land, like Joseph, right? He wanted to be buried in uh, Israel. And a bad death is that when you have no proper burial, like Jezebel, who was uh, just taken by the animals. Um, is this correct? What about a short life? What about those who just contracted an illness and, and died young? What about a violent death as a martyr, like Stephen? What about sickness? What about Isaiah 57 from verse 1? The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprighteousness. And if this righteous man is young, what about that? If this righteous man dies by the sword in defense of, of um, innocent people, what about that? So I think that research paper is not so much incorrect but incomplete. It hasn't really uh, uh, looked at the whole counsel of God. Okay, it says biblical stories, right? But he has not looked into the revelation that has come through the New Testament and even in parts of the Old Testament like Isaiah 57. So, in, not totally incorrect, but I think is incomplete. But the conclusion of his paper is instructive. And he concludes with this, uh, let me quote. He says, It is remarkable that in the literature of ancient Israel, the elements of a cult or a doctrine of the dead and of retribution after death, that means uh, punishment after death, are not explicitly mentioned. From a theological point of view, the emphasis is on this life. Another statement from him, he says, it is the quality of life before death and not the menace or the threat of comfort or of some sort of afterlife which is deciding for seeing death as good or bad. Very complicated statement. Right? So it's this life. Lah. Don't, don't, you know, we count from this life whether the death is good or bad and not whether you die violently or die in your sleep. I've got some other quotes. Uh, 
Of course, people like Harvard, so I chose Harvard. The, one of the, the Jewish chaplain at Harvard University says this, the Hebrew Bible does not contemplate much in the way of life after death. And if you look through, the Old Testament is, is really quite true. It doesn't talk so much about heaven and all this. And the, the president of Harvard, until she's still president for a few more months, spiritual preparedness was the essence of dying well. And I think this is so true. Emphasis is on this life, on the quality of life that you're living now. Someone once said, dying is the easy part. It's the living here that is difficult. So asking if someone has died peacefully, I think is a wrong question, or at least not a very helpful question. We should be asking, did you live a purposeful life? Like Simeon. A purposeful life, a righteous life, and a devout life. So Luke said, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He lived a purposeful life because the Holy Spirit was mentioned just three times in the passage about this man's life. That the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. That the Holy Spirit gave revelation to Simeon. And that the Holy Spirit moved Simeon to recognize the Christ child. And Simeon obeyed the Holy Spirit, and so he fulfilled God's purpose. He led this purposeful, righteous, and devout life. So, let's talk about righteous. Righteous is quite simple, right? Righteousness is quite simple. Righteousness is just what God says is right, is right. That's righteousness. Other, other translations use the word just. Simeon was just and devout. So just is about rightness, it's about justice, and it's primarily about morality. And so Matthew 6, verse 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. When God is king, it is right. If God cannot be said to be king in anything, in your relationship, in your working uh, ethics and practices, if it is not king of that situation, then it cannot be right. And a very good guide is the Ten Commandments, right? As far as morality is concerned, and an easier guide is the greatest commandment, to love God and to love our neighbour and ourselves. And so that is righteousness, very simple. Because I don't have so much time, I want to talk more about devout. What is a devout person? I find this devout a bit harder. Uh, recently, I've been learning about Shakespeare. You know, I talk to my friends. He always quotes Shakespeare. I say, I don't understand what you're talking about. He said, that's an idiot's guide. Okay, you can read this book by Charles Lamb. And so I went to read it. An idiot of idiot, I still cannot understand because some of the stories are so complicated. Um, and then I found this in Twelfth Night, one of a comedy by Shakespeare. And there's this quote here in Act 3, Scene 4, okay, whatever that means. A coward, a most devout coward, religious in it. So I searched the, the Greek word for righteousness um, called dikaios, and I found 76 hits in the, the New Testament alone, huh? uh, New Testament only. 76 times it talks about righteousness. So I searched the word devout in Greek, eulabes. I only found four verses that talks about devout. So what are these? Simeon was the first mention of a devout man, and we know his story, Luke chapter 2. 
devout men from every nation came to the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They traveled long distances because it says from every nation and they listed some of these nations who are very far away. They came just to honor God. And you must know that it is very dangerous to travel long distances in those days, right? There are highway robbers and you might fall sick or your, your donkey may collapse and then you've got to walk and all that. Devout. The third one is devout men buried Stephen. Stephen the first martyr of the church, stoned to death. And this devout man went there, openly collect his body and go bury him. That means to be identified with Stephen, openly. And then Ananias, the one who was called by God to minister to Paul. When Paul was on the road to Jerusalem, uh, to Damascus, and then the light came, he became blind. And Ananias bargained with God a little bit. He, he objected to it. He was fearful of Paul, but he obeyed and he went as the Lord told him. What do you get a sense of this word devout? You get a sense of courage. Courage. Traveling long distances in those days took courage. Coming forward to bury Stephen, who was stoned to death for being a heretic of the Jewish faith, took courage. Going to help Paul, the persecutor of the church, took courage. And I think the opposite is Shakespeare. Uh, this one, right? A coward. A most devout coward. Okay, I really don't understand this uh, Twelfth Night and, and all that. I tried to read it, uh, but it was too complicated for me. I just look at this quotation, and I think it's like, whenever this person needs to make a decision, he makes it the coward's way. He takes the easiest, painless way out, and he does it religiously. Every decision you make, Take the coward's way, safer, easier. You know, recently somebody came to, 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 to me and, and said, I, I seek your forgiveness over something. I said, wow, this guy is not a coward. He is devout. He decided to do so because he was obedient to God. Some time ago, somebody came to confess to me the sin of, uh, of viewing pornography. I said, wow, this guy is not a coward. He is devout. He decided to confess and to seek help for this thing because he obeys God. So let's come back to, to Simeon. In what way might Simeon be religiously devout and not a coward? You look at it this way. God says, Simeon, you will not die until you see the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. What does it mean? It can also mean, after you see the Messiah, you will die. Right? And God didn't say that uh, you just wait maybe five years, ten years. God didn't say when he would see the Messiah. God didn't say exactly that, Simeon, you will see the Messiah when he's a baby. God didn't say anything. He just said that you will see the Messiah. And how would Simeon then live his life after receiving that message from God? You could say that he lived his life as though he could die today after seeing the Messiah. And he doesn't know when he will see the Messiah. And he made devout decisions daily on that basis. I may die today. So he had to decide, I don't want to be caught in adultery when I meet the Messiah, when the Messiah appears. I don't want to be caught viewing first century pornography when I see the Messiah 
or when the Messiah appears. I don't want to be called ungracious when, I'm, when they don't allow me to park my donkey in the temple or in the market. And then suddenly the Christ, the Messiah, appears in the car park or the donkey park. I don't want to walk away from someone who needs my help and then that someone turns out to be Christ. I think that was the way he lived his life after he had that revelation from the Lord. So in the same way, how should we live our lives today? I think we ought to live our lives as though we could die today. Or that Christ will come today. The second coming of Christ. And what kind of righteous and devout people would we be if we lived that way? Courageously, not cowardly. How to get courage? Simeon got courage by waiting upon the Lord and praying for the consolation of Israel. That's a very common, I understand, traditional term that they use in the old days. But we can learn from Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. The emphasis, wait for the Lord. Simeon wait, waited for the consolation of Israel. Psalm 31, verse 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. What does wait for the Lord mean? It simply means to pray. It simply means to have that time of quiet before God and submit to God. Like Simeon was waiting for the consolation of, of Israel. <clears throat> so let me call the musicians up. So may I now issue a call to action, altar call, decision, courageous decision. Maybe I shouldn't say the word altar call. I should say doctor call. Right, if you get that phone call from the clinic or from the doctor's office to say, come quickly, we have something to tell you. It refocuses your mind tremendously. It really does. And then you begin to see the value of this life. I'm not going to waste one more hour. I'm not going to waste one more day. It sharpens, it clarifies your mind. And I think that is what's really important. So Dr. Tang calling you today. Okay. So how to be righteous and devout? I think just two very, very simple points. Confess sin and confess Christ. Right? If there is sin in our lives, if there is unforgiveness, bearing a grudge, if there is unholiness, something that's not right, where you dare not say that God is king in this situation, in my business practice, if God comes in, I'll be very ashamed, I'll be embarrassed. In my relationships with people, if God comes in, I'll be totally ashamed and confess that. Seek righteousness. And all these other things of business success and, and, and relationship success will be added unto you. Confess sin, confess Christ. Well, share the good news. Invite somebody to um, the service here next, next Sunday. Invite somebody to your home for Christmas. Share the five beats, even at home. Don't have to wait till Teban Gardens to, to do that. So confess sin, confess Christ. Live not as a religious coward, but live religiously, righteously, devoutly. Okay, I've chosen this song that we can sing together only for the last dancer because it talks about from cowardice defenders, but it's a very appropriate song for Christmas. Let's, let's rise to our feet. Father who 
God. Indeed, defend us from cowardice. Let our lives be righteous and devout. And just through a very, very small and simple example of your servant Simeon, God, would you lead us by the Holy Spirit? Would we be attentive to the Holy Spirit? And I pray, God, that you would set things right. You would be the king on the throne of our lives. That we would confess sin and you would forgive us faithfully and you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we would confess Christ faithfully, especially this season. And that you would give us the joy of holding a baby Christian, a new child of God, saved by grace. And that we would all have good life, good death. That our lives would be as salt and light unto the world. And now we dismiss. Lord, dismiss us with your blessings, with your enabling, and especially for this Christmas season, to be the bearers of good news, good tidings, love, peace. I pray in Jesus' name.